Well, good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. No, this is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West. The most haunted city in the country. Well, today's June the 20th. 171st day of the year. And 94 days remain to the end of the year. And I hope everybody enjoyed yesterday's uh, federal holiday for June uh, Okay, holidays and it is National American Eagle Day, Ugliest Dog Day, World Refugee Day. I don't know how there can be any refugees, almost all of them are here. International Nystagmus Day, Martyrs Day in Eritrea, National Saluma Light Therapy Day. National Flag Day in Argentina, National Hike with a Geek Day, National Ice Cream Soda Day, National Jimmy Day, National Kogaman Day, uh, that's a tea time snack, National Vanilla Milkshake Day, National West Virginia Day, um, Rath Yatra, World Productivity Day. Okay, all that having been said, 451 A.D., the Battle of Chalons. Flavius Atheus battles Attila the Hun. After the battle, which was inconclusive, Attila retreats, causing the Romans to interpret it as a victory. 1180, First Battle of Uji, uh, starting the uh, Genpai War in Japan. 1622, the Battle of Hoshst takes place during the Thirty Years' War. 1631, Sack of Baltimore. The Irish village of Baltimore is attacked by Algerian pirates. Well, what happened? <sighs> 1652, Tarahunku Ahmed Pasha is appointed Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire. 1685, Monmouth Rebellion. James Scott, the first Duke of Monmouth, declared himself King of England at Bridgewater. 1756, British garrisons imprisoned in the Black Hole of Calcutta. 1782, the U.S. Congress adopts the Great Seal of the United States. 1787, Oliver Ellsworth moves to, at the Federal Convention to call the government the United States. 1789, Deputies of the French Third Estate take the tennis court oath. 1791, King Louis XVI, disguised as a valet, and the French royal family attempt to flee Paris during the French Revolution. Didn't make it. 1819, U.S. vessel SS Savannah arrives at Liverpool, U.K. It's the first steam-propelled vessel to cross the Atlantic, although much of the journey is made under sail. 1837, Queen Victoria succeeds to the British throne. 1840, Samuel Morse gets the patent for the telegraph. 1862, Barbu Katargiu, the Prime Minister of Romania, is assassinated. 1863, American Civil War, West Virginia is admitted to the 35th U.S. state. Uh, Virginia seceded from the Union. West Virginia said not just no, but hell no, and created its own state. 1877, Alexander Graham Bell installs the world's first commercial telephone service in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. 
1893, Lizzie Borden is acquitted of the murders of her mother, of her father and stepmother. 1895, the Peel Canal crossing the base of the Jutland Peninsula and the busiest artificial railway in the world is a, a waterway in the world is officially opened. 1900, Boxer Rebellion. The Imperial Chinese Army begins a 55-day siege at the Legation Quarter in Beijing, China. In 1900, Baron Edward Tolley, uh, Atoll, leader of the Russian Polar Expedition of 1900, departs St. Petersburg in Russia on the explorer ship Zarya, never to return. 1921, workers of Buckingham and Carnatic Mills in the city of Chennai, India, begin a four-month strike. 1926, the 28th International Eucharist Congress begins in Chicago. Over 250,000 spectators attend the opening procession. 1942, the Holocaust. Kazimierz Perchowski and three others dressed as members of the SS uh, Toten Kaverbande, a steel and SS staff car, and escaped from Auschwitz concentration camp. 1943, Detroit race riot breaks out and continues for three days. Also in 43, World War II, the Royal Air Force launches Operation Bellicose, the first shuttle bombing the raid of the war. Avril Lancaster bombers damaged the V-2 rocket production facilities at the Zeppelin Works while en route to an airbase in Algeria. 1944, World War II, the Battle of the Philippine Sea concludes with a decisive U.S. naval victory. This lopsided naval air battle is also known as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. 1944, Continuation War. Soviet Union demands non-conditional surrender from Finland during the beginning of the partially successful Vyborg Petrozavodsk offensive. Finnish government refuses. Also in 44, the experimental MW-18014 V-2 rocket reaches an altitude of 176 kilometers. It was the first man-made object we know about to reach outer space. 1945, the U.S. Secretary of State approved the transfer of Vernon von Braun and his team of rocket scientists to the U.S. under Operation Paperclip. Even though von Braun was a rabid Nazi, according to many, his file was um, doctored to remove that uh, those annotations. 1948, the Deutschmark is, is introduced in uh, Western Allied-occupied Germany. Soviet military administration in Germany responded by imposing the Berlin blockade four days later. 1956, a Venezuelan super constellation crashes in the Atlantic Ocean off Asbury Park, New Jersey. Kills 74 people. 1959, a rare June hurricane strikes Canada's Gulf of St. Lawrence, killing 35. 1960, the Mali Federation grants and gains independence from France. It later splits into uh, Mali and Senegal. 1963, following the Cuban Missile Crisis, Soviet Union and the U.S. signed an agreement to establish the so-called Red Telephone Link between Washington, D.C. and Moscow. 1964, a Curtis C-46 commando crashes in the Shanghai District of Taiwan, the, the Shengang District of Taiwan, kills 57. 1972, Watergate scandal. Eighteen and a half minute gap appears in the tape recording of the conversation between President Nixon and his advisors regarding the recent arrest of his operatives while breaking into the Watergate complex. 1973, snipers fire on left-wing uh, Peronist in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in what's known as the Zaiza Massacre. Thirteen are killed, more than 300 are injured. 1973, 
Aero Mexico Flight 229 crashes on approach to Licenciado Gustavo Diaz Ordaz International Airport. Kills all 27 people on board. 1975, the film Jaws is released in the U.S. on this date, becoming the highest grossing film of that time and starting a trend of films known as summer blockbusters. 1979, ABC News correspondent Bill Stewart shot dead by a Nicaraguan National Guard soldier under the regime of Anastasio Somoza de Valle during the Nicaraguan Revolution. Others caught on tape and sparks an international outcry against the regime. 1982, the International Conference on the Holocaust and Genocide opens in Tel Aviv despite attempts by the Turkish government to cancel it, as it included presentations on the Armenian Genocide. Also in 82, the Argentine uh, Corbeta Uruguay base on Southern Tool surrenders to Royal Marine Commandos in the final action of the Falklands War. In 1988, Haitian President Leslie Managat is ousted from power in a coup d'etat led by Lieutenant General Henri Namfi. 1990, the asteroid Eureka is discovered. Also in 1990, a 7.4 Hill rudbar earthquake affects northern Iran with a maximum Mercalli intensity of 10, which is considered extreme, killing 35 to 50,000 and injuring 60 to 105,000. 1991, the German Bundestag votes to move the seat of government from the former West German capital Bonn to the present capital of Berlin. 1994, the 94 Imam Reza shrine bomb explosion in Iran leaves 25 dead and 70 to 300 injured. Uh, 2003, the Wikimedia Foundation is founded in St. Petersburg, Florida. And in 2019, Iran's air defense forces shoot down an American surveillance drone over the Strait of Hormuz and and rising tensions between the two countries. On that note, our history segment's over. Now, we were talking yesterday about what I call the hit list, which are uh, mysterious deaths of witnesses to the JFK assassination. It wasn't just Kennedy, Oswald and, uh, and Oswald who were killed. A whole laundry list of folks were killed. And nobody seems to re- know. Uh, I mean, one of the best known, of course, was Donkey Kill Gallon. The um, she knew a lot of things about a lot of things. She had strong links to the Anna Castro community. It was rumored she was a CIA media asset, which would account for a lot. She told friends that whom she trusted she was very close to uh, discovering who really. Uh, been responsible for the death of Kennedy. And she pieced together some of the main players she believed played key roles in the assassination, including David Ferry and H.L. Hunt. She realized Jack Ruby had also been involved, and she was investigating Ruby's connections to the Texas Mafia. You know, the... She was found sitting up in bed as if she had uh, died while reading a book. And the many incongruities present at her death scene immediately bring to mind the, the words of Chief of Investigative Support Unit at the FBI Academy, who's uh, made a number of comments uh, that were quoted in the book Dead Wrong. 
Offenders who stage crime scenes usually make mistakes because they arrange the scene to resemble what they believe it should look like. And when they do it, they experience a great deal of stress and don't have the time to fit all the pieces together logically. And as a result, their inconsistencies and forensic findings and the overall big picture of the crime scene, uh, these inconsistencies um, are basically red flags that it was staged. And there were uh, a lot of red flags in uh, the Dorothy Kilgallen murder scene. Um, her body was found in a bed that friends and family knew she never slept in. Unless you underestimate the gravity of that point, you have to consider this. Dorothy's hairdresser, who discovered the body, explained it. Um, when I tell you the bed she was found in and how I found her, she's going to know she was murdered. She was found wearing what has ultimately been described as a peignoir or bolero-type blouse over a nightgown, a thing which those who knew her best said that she would never have gone to bed in. It was a, a blue bed jacket, but apparently it was Dorothy considered it horrid and would never have worn it. She was in bed with makeup on her false eyelashes, which friends and family knew she'd never go to bed wearing. There was a book placed on her bed, as though she'd been reading before she passed out, but it was a book she'd already read. She'd discussed it with friends. And she used a set of reading glasses to read books. There were no reading glasses anywhere near her. And laboratory testing on the glass found near her revealed traces of one barbiturate. The autopsy revealed she was killed by a cocktail of small doses of three different barbiturates, which formed a lethal combination uh, with alcohol. Made it look as though she had simply taken some pills, gone to bed, and passed away. So how did she get three different barbiturates in her? The air conditioner had been left on, which she never did at night, because the house got unbearably cold. And it was very cold when her hairdresser arrived the next morning. And a casual investigation was done on her death. It was a what was called a soft pedal investigation rather than a serious investigation you'd expect from the sudden death of a nationally respected news personality. And there wasn't nearly as much forensic information on her death as there should have been for even a typical non-celebrity death. And what does exist is frankly vague or self-contradictory. The um, lividity markings on her body show that the body was moved post-mortem. Uh, Cassie Parnell is the author of the Kilgallen Files, an online educational site dedicated to learning more about her life and sudden death. And uh, Cassie uh, Parnell has what she might refer to as a Special investigator's zeal and dedication to that uh, lends well to years of specific research focused on one topic. According to her, in discussing the lividity marks, the scene was staged. The autopsy findings show lividity posterior involving the, the left, the neck, and the face versus how she was discovered propped up in bed. Her head tilted proves she died in a different position as she was found. Position promoted an accidental death. 
The medical implications of the little video markings on the back of the left neck and face uh, imply the body of the victim was actually not in a propped up position at the time of death. And it's highly indicative that the body of the victim was moved after they were already dead. And for the body to have been moved calls everything into question that was found at the scene. Now her blood alcohol concentration, or the BAC, was 0 0.15, which though legally intoxicated by contextual standards was pretty much just a normal late night after work in 1965 for a social celebrity. He was known to be a regular drinker. Um, she wasn't by any means successfully inebriated, uh, as attested to by witnesses who saw and heard during the same in that time period, close to her final moments. Noteworthy was the exact combination of drugs that killed her. Three distinctly different barbiturates were found in relation to her death. Uh, Amobarbital, known as uh, Tuanol, Pentobarbital, known as Nimbital, and uh, Secobarbital, known as Seconol. Now, an overdose of any of these drugs will cause unconsciousness in 5 to 15 minutes and death anywhere between 20 to 50 minutes, but in combination, they're particularly lethal. And it was the exact right amount and combination to result in death. It was a level of only about five pills of each of the three drugs. Um, it's interesting to see the approximation of the amount of pills on her system at the time she died is in line with the uh, relatively precise amounts needed to cause death. The amount of pills estimated to be in her system didn't lean toward incredibly more pills than the minimal lethal dose, as most suicide by pills will do. Um... In fact, her husband, Richard, when he killed himself, practically swallowed, swallowed, little one more time, swallowed everything within reach. In other words, the fact that the exact amount of drugs found in her system, the equivalent of 15 to 20 pills, uh, though they didn't actually have to be in pill form, was barely enough to kill her. It was the combination of the three that did her in. And that presents a huge problem. If she was trying to commit suicide, then she didn't take nearly enough pills. Several doctors who studied the case agreed the dosage wasn't in the range and medically expected for suicide. And there's another problem with a the suicide theory. If she was stood up by, spurned, or in any way emotionally ravaged by the, the uh, Ron Pataki, the man she was seeing and driven to suicide, she didn't take the kind of massive dose consistent with that type of anger. And there were plenty of pills at the house. And she come home resolute and seething, she would have availed herself of a virtual pharmacopoeia. So she didn't take pills to commit suicide, but it didn't possible she took that many pills accidentally either. It appeals as if it, it appears it would have been difficult to ingest 15 to 20 pills accidentally. And she was seen at 1 o'clock in the morning and appeared to be in control of herself, maybe a little high from drinking, and her time of death was estimated about 2. And the pills were in a perplexingly moderate range. Two and a half of them for accident, too few for suicide. Just enough to kill her. 
And most of her medical records and a lot of the medical studies related to her death are available for study online if you care to. They're at kilgallonfiles.com. In short, she overdosed, but the number of pills that were in her system fall within a window of suspicion. It's the perfect amount. Too many for accident, too few for intentional suicide. And because she'd been drinking, the effect of the pills was multiplied. And she most likely died quickly. But she would have had trouble breathing, which may have been stressful to the body. Um... Now, there was something I've heard about uh, from forensic investigators. It's called the rule-out method. In Kilgallen's case, you can rule out natural causes, although she had some substance abuse issues. The autopsy revealed she had no cirrhosis of the liver. She was a healthy 52-year-old woman. You can rule out suicide. The night she died, she had performed live on TV and did a phenomenal job. And as was customary, she went out for cocktails afterwards with people from the show. She socialized. She was in good spirits. She wasn't depressed. And she was excited about her upcoming book and told friends she had information that would shake the world. One friend who said he talked to her earlier on the night she died was asked if she sounded suicidal. And she, he said, no, the last time I talked to her, she was normal. She telephoned Western Union at 2.20 in the morning to arrange pickup of her column for the next day's newspaper. According to the manager of the Western Union, uh, Ms. Kilgallen called me at 2.20 in the morning. Sounded great. Said, good morning, Mr. Spiegel. Dorothy Kilgallen, would you send a messenger over to the house to pick up my column and take it to the Journal American? I'll leave it in the regular place in the door. She also uh, had insufficient drug levels for an attempted suicide. Literally, by accident, you couldn't have just enough. You can rule out accident, the exotic combination of fast-acting barbiturates found in her body, uh, ensures she didn't take them by accident or absentmindedly. And it was established that at least as late as 2.20, she was her usual self and completely coherent. But by 4 in the morning, she was dead. Or it had been an accident, she would have had to mistakenly taken at least five capsules of each of the three different drugs inside an hour. There's noting that was common knowledge among her crowd that she, uh, her regular drink was vodka tonic, and tonic contains quinine, which uh, is known for its ability to mask the bitterness to barbiturates. If somebody slips, you'll leave the combination of drugs known as uh, Mickey Finn. And her death showed a lot of signs of crime scene staging. The video marks that were posterior involving the left neck and the face are strong indication she didn't die in the position she was found. Her body's found in a bed in which her close friends knew she never slept. Master bedroom was strictly for the false pretense that she and her husband had a happy marriage, a fact which her killers had no way to know. If her family had acted to protect her reputation, as some have speculated, why would they put her in the wrong bed? Typical death scenes and drug overdoses revealed unnatural body positions due to the involuntary muscle spasms. There had also been vomit on the victim as the body attempts to reject the toxins. She had neither. Like Marilyn Monroe, the pristine condition was far too neat. A blanket had been pulled up to her neck. 
according to friends who uh, discovered her. The bed was spotless. She was dressed very peculiarly like uh, nobody had ever seen her before. She always was in pajamas and old socks, and her makeup would be off, and her hair would be off. But she was completely dressed just like she's going out. Her hair was in place, the makeup wasn't on, the false eyelashes were on. She was dressed in a blue matching peignoir and robe, which was something she'd never wear to go to bed. And her friend also noted that a book was laid out on the bed, but it was turned upside down. Wasn't in the right position for her if she'd been reading it. Laid down too perfectly, and it was a book she'd already read. Home was very cold because the air conditioner was on. And that was unnecessary because it was cold outside and speaks to the fact the victim had simply gone to bed and died of too many medications. She would have turned off the air conditioning first, just as she normally did. But the air conditioning could, in fact, mask the time of death. Another mistake in the staging was the book was one she'd already read. And also she needed and always used reading glasses when she read a book. There were none in the room. Uh, that was a point that whoever staged the crime scene didn't know anything about. She was befriended during the last months by Ron Pataki, and the two became very close, and many said quite an item. And some claimed Pataki had links to U.S. intelligence. Uh, in the book uh, Kilgallen, it was written that prior to meeting Dorothy Pataki enrolled in a training school for assassins in Panama, which was probably the School of the Americas, which I had some interaction with. Pataki's believed to be one of the last to see her alive. The two would often rendezvous late at night to share drinks. Um, Lee Israel, who wrote uh, Kilgallen, believes Pataki had something to do with uh, the death of Kilgallen. Other sources apparently verified that Pataki did graduate from one of the school for assassins that later became the U.S. Army School of the Americas. And a number of sources said uh, Kilgallen went from the television studio for What's My Line uh, to uh, P.J. Clark's to the Regency Hotel. Now, her home was on East 68th between Madison and Park. And uh, nobody could find a driver for Carrie Cadillac, which was the limo company she always used to verify that she was alive when she voluntarily went home. Three sources cited by uh, Lee Israel agreed the only reason Kogala would go to the Regency was for a romantic rendezvous or a private conversation with a close friend. The Regency did not have one of those trendy nightclubs in 1965. It had a lounge where a celebrity would go for privacy, not to show off or be seen. And Kilgallen knew the chances of finding an actor showing up, uh, showing off there were slim to none. <clears throat> and there was something that not found in some of the better books. One of the What's My Line contestants that night was a Kentucky woman who saw Kilgallen with a man at a banquet table at the Regency Hotel Lounge. Now, a cocktail party was going on in the lounge, and that's why the the Kentucky guest was there. Kilgallen and her male companion paid no attention to the cocktail party. They were talking clearly some serious business. Nobody seems to know what that business was. Well, there doesn't seem to be much question. Dorothy Kilgallen was murdered. Probably done as a national security assassination. 
Uh, notes for upcoming JFK book, including the backup copy that she had reportedly given to a friend, vanished from the face of the earth. Now, the next individual um, who made our hit list was Florence Pritchett Smith. The, um, the inconsistencies. Um, she, di she died the day after Dorothy did. She'd been given uh, copies of... Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen's uh, confidential notes about the JFK assassination, but they couldn't be found. The uh, there is evidence that she suffered from leukemia, and little is known about her death except she died of a cerebral hemorrhage, apparently caused by the leukemia. But the fact that it was known to several people she had been entrusted with a backup copy of Kilgallen's notes um, raised questions. She actually was given a, a copy of the chapter of the book that focused on JFK. And just like Kilgallen's entire manuscript, they vanished, which does give the indication of foul play. If Kilgallen's death was accidental and Smith's death was natural, there's no adequate explanation for one very important factor. Why did all of Kilgallen's work uh, she'd been doing on the JFK cover-up completely vanish? They still haven't been found. And you know a lot of people made every effort they could to find them. Well, the next member of our hit list is Betty McDonald, also known as Nancy Jane Mooney. She died February 13, 1964. She was a dancer at Jack Ruby's nightclub and provided the alibi for a man accused of shooting a key witness to the JFK assassination. She died of strangulation. But the brilliant Dallas police um, decided it was suicide. She was found hanging in her jail cell at 4.45 a.m. about two hours after her arrest for fighting with another woman. She used her own trousers to hang herself. As far as it concerns the events surrounding the JFK assassination, the facts on the death of Betty McDonald are actually more about the facts concerning a man named Warren Reynolds. When Officer J.D. Tippett was shot and killed in the Elk Cliff section of Dallas shortly after the assassination of Kennedy, a Dallas resident named Warren Reynolds was standing right in the path of the fleeing gunman leaving the Tippett crime scene. Mr. Reynolds chased after the gunman for at least a block and Saw his face up close and personal. He had a good look at the guy, but uh, the powers that be didn't want to hear what he had to say. Reynolds told police the man who shot Tippett was not Lee Harvey Oswald. It had been decided Lee Harvey Oswald had to have been the one to shot him so we could wrap everything up in one package. Well, Reynolds was shot at, harassed, Almost had his 10-year-old daughter kidnapped. And finally, he changed his story and told authorities what they wanted to hear, that it had been Oswald that shot um, Tippett. Now, Betty McDonald, who danced under the name of Nancy Mooney, was a stripper at Jack Ruby's nightclub. When police arrested a man accused of shooting Mr. Reynolds, Betty McDonald gave the man an alibi. 
stating she'd been with him at the time of the shooting. Well, McDonald was uh, arrested a short time later to diff on a different matter and was found dead in her jail cell, having either hung herself or having had some assistance in the process. Now, it was officially ruled a suicide, but it could well have been a murder. In any case, its links to the Kennedy assassination are somewhat peripheral. Um, uh, Warren Reynolds, who was employed in a Carlotta block from the scene of the shooting of Officer Tippett, told the FBI January 21, 64, he'd seen a man carrying a pistol running from the scene of the killing. He also told him he couldn't identify the man as Oswald, despite the fact he had followed the man for a block and seen him at close range. Two days after this FBI interview, he was shot through the head in the basement of his office. Nothing was stolen, so clearly uh, there was no obvious motive. Reynolds was hospitalized and recovered from his head wound. He'd been out of the hospital about three weeks when... Uh, in February of 64, an attempt was made to kidnap his 10-year-old daughter, and he and his family got telephone threats. Reynolds showing fear brought about major changes in his everyday life, including uh, continuous worry, the end-of-night walks, and the presence of a friend at the car a lot after dark. Got himself a watchdog, surrounded his house with floodlights that could be instantly turned on. <clears throat> now, David Wayne Garner, the prime suspect arrested after, arrested after the shooting of Reynolds was released on the strength of an alibi provided by his girlfriend, Nancy Jane Mooney, also known as uh, Betty McDonald. Ms. Mooney was one of the strippers who worked for Jack Ruby. And eight days after providing the alibi for Garner, she was arrested. Charged was disturbing the peace. She'd allegedly been fighting with a roommate on a street corner, although the roommate wasn't arrested. Two hours later, she's dead. And with many of the members of this hit list, we'll never know what in other information Ms. McDonald may have provided, although she didn't long enough to tell anybody. Had she lived, she might have rescinded her previous alibi testimony. And as a former employee of the Carousel Club, uh, she could also affirm, and as, as did a number of others, that uh, Bo Tippett and Oswald patronized the establishment, and they were in fact friends. And although the case does relate to the Kennedy assassination, its linkage is via Warren Reynolds, who was a very clear case of the powers that be, intimidating and harassing a key witness into involuntarily changing his testimony to fit the official version of events. And as for Betty McDonald, her death appears to either be suicide or murder for reasons unknown. doesn't appear her death had anything to do with her knowing too much about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, suicide or murder, her death doesn't appear to have been a professional job. But it does show a clear case of witness intimidation regarding Warren Reynolds, and she may have been murdered by um, members of the police force. Let's talk about Eddie Benavides, February 1964. Cause of death was a gunshot wound. It's a unsolved murder. In another odd series of events, the brother of an eyewitness was murdered, shot in the back of the head in a bar in Dallas. And since the two looked a lot alike, 
It's been suggested that murder was actually a case of mistaken identity. Now, Domingo Dom Benavides witnessed the escape of the actual killer of Officer Tippett. Got a close look at the man, explained to police very clearly he could simply not identify that man as Lee Harvey Oswald. He was intelligent, well-versed, and thoughtful young man who was very confident in what he had and hadn't seen. And he could be viewed online in interviews, which convey his intelligence and presence of mind. He testified he got a really good look at the man that killed Tippett and was highly specific in his description of how the killer differed from Oswald. He said, I remember the back of his head. It seemed like his hairline went square instead of tapering off. Kind of went down and squared off and made his head look uh, flat in the back. Well, he was repeatedly threatened by police and advised not to talk about what he saw. The police didn't want him to identify the actual killer of Tippett. According to uh, information put forth by author Monty Cook, Domingo Benavides said the killer didn't resemble Oswald. But soon afterwards, he got death threats. His look-like brother was killed in a bar fight. And suddenly, he reversed his testimony and signed, uh, signed off on a statement the killer was Oswald. Death threats stopped. Well, it's interesting to note that um, the powers that be wanted to put an end to this matter. Little did they know it would drag on for, what, almost 70 years. We got Bill Chesser, died of a heart attack. Official verdict is natural causes. Now, a number of people said that Mr. Chesser is believed to have information about a Ruby Oswald link. And that seems highly plausible because uh, there clearly were links between Oswald and Ruby. Many reported seeing the, the two together. And Mr. Chesser clearly did have information about an Oswald link to Ruby. He was an auto mechanic who worked on Jack Ruby's car. And he and another mechanic at the garage where he worked uh, reported it seen Lee Harvey Oswald driving Ruby's car. Now, Little is known about the death of Mr. Chester. And the death may have been from natural causes, but then again, it's possible to cause heart attacks with various medication. How about Hank Killam, March 17, 1964? He died of blood loss from a severed throat, three-inch cut through the jugular vein and carotid artery. The official verdict was suicide. Local medical authorities initially concluded it was suicide, but apparently later changed that finding to accident. And there were some inconsistencies. Um, now, the police finding of suicide only makes sense if some extremely serious government people told police it had to be suicide. Otherwise, no sane person would conclude that a man intentionally jumped through a ground floor plate glass window for the purpose of committing suicide. No one commits suicide by jumping through a department store window at 4.30 in the morning. But there were 
entities uh, hot on Mr. Uh, Kimlin's trail, and no one knew that better than him. Now, there's an official Library of Congress investigation by the Congressional Research Service entitled Analysis of Reports and Data Bearing on Circumstances of Death of 21 Individuals Connected with the Assassination of President Kennedy. In regard to uh, Kimmel, he was a house painter in Dallas at the time of President Kennedy's assassination. He was connected with both Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby. First, his wife, Wanda Joyce Killam, worked for Jack Ruby as an exotic dancer in one of his clubs for two years prior to the assassination. And Killam was acquainted with and occasionally worked on uh, painting assignments with a man named John Carter who resided in a rooming house located at uh, 1026 North Beckley in Dallas, where Lee Harvey Oswald also lived. Now, he died March 17, 1964, as I said. Now, <clears throat> Killam... Uh, moved from town to town after the assassination and from state to state in an effort to avoid uh, continual questioning by federal agents. According to his wife, Hank was hounded from job to job by federal agents. And before his death in Florida, he told his brother, Earl Killam, I'm a dead man, but I run as far as I'm going to run. Well, at 4 o'clock in the morning on March 17th, while asleep in his mother's house, he was called up to the phone, dressed and left home, car doors heard to slam, according to his mother, and even though Hank didn't own a car. A few hours later, he's found dead on the street in Pensacola, Florida, with his throat cut. And since he was lying near a pile of broken glass, the paper said he either jumped or fell into a plate glass window. And, of course, the Pensacola police immediately ruled the death to suicide. The local coroner called it accidental. Neither of those parties knew the conflict in their findings until early 1967 when his brother Earl Killam asked the body be exhumed in an effort to determine the exact cause of death. Well, believe it or not, the reason stated by the Congressional Research Service for not being able to investigate the death of Hank Killam was his death has proved difficult to pursue from Washington due to the fact the Library of Congress does not permanently retain issues of the Pensacola Journal. Really? A thorough and capable group of investigators, our taxpayer dollars uh, fine at the, um, at the Congressional Research Service, couldn't find the newspaper so they couldn't do an investigation. Well, Hank was found dead near a broken, broken plate glass window in Pensacola, Florida. His jugular vein had been severely cut, and he bled to death before they could get him to the hospital. And, of course, the police immediately called it a suicide. His body had been thrown through a department store window in Pensacola less than four months after the assassination. Kimlock's death aroused suspicions, and the county solicited a Carl Harper's mine, which in '67 began a nationally publicized investigation. During the investigation, Harper discovered a killer had fled Dallas, moved to Pensacola, then tapped him back to Pensacola to escape agents of the federal government that were after him. Well, but Harper wasn't the only one who questioned the finding. Three key figures ripped apart the police theory of probable suicide and the death of a man who claimed he knew too much about the Kennedy assassination. 
Going to the article, there were a number of valid reasons why the evidence actually indicated murder. You know, Harper, who did more police work on the case than the police did, said, I was working the case as a claim against liability and didn't think too much about the mystery aspects of it at the time. The window of the store was broken. Blood went way back inside, four to five feet. And to him, that meant killing went through the window with tremendous force. If it slipped or staggered into the glass, the blood would have been right out the window. And if he had fallen through, he would have landed real close to the edge. Even uh, county coroner, uh, Dr. A.H. Northrup, was shocked at the determination made by the powers that be. He said, I didn't know until now the police have listed a death as a probable suicide. Ten years as a medical examiner, I've never heard of a man trying to kill himself that way. And that killer would also have had to jump up and over a two-foot-high section of brick wall even to get into the plate glass window. And the mystery is even worse now the fact that his body was discovered on the pavement, 50 feet from the window. That's no way to commit suicide, the insurance investigator theorized. If he'd been cut anywhere else except on the jugular vein, he would never have bled to death. There were no other marks or bruises in any shape, form, or fashion on his body. And his brother Earl made an interesting statement. He said, he remember the weekend his brother died, how Hank had been a strange man wearing the collar of a priest several times near 316 West Romana Street, where Kellen was staying with his mother, Mary. And no Catholic priest or Episcopal clergyman ever visited the area. Hank Kellen was frightened of the stranger who uh, seemed to be shadowing him and told his own Baptist minister, be careful, they don't put a knife in your back for after being seen talking to me. And uh, I misread a word I wrote. He was, uh, Hank had seen a man wearing the collar of a priest. The minister, Reverend George Blue, also said uh, Killam uh, hinted at those last days of his life that his special knowledge of that thing in Dallas would lead to his death. Well, he was a man on the run. It was clear he knew of an Oswald connection to Jack Ruby because he was apparently a key part of that connection. He wasn't just worried, he was in constant and acute fear of his life, and those fears turned out to be very well founded. According to his wife, he came home the night of his assassination as white as a sheet. She said he stayed up all night watching TV reports, and later began to keep a file of newspaper clippings on the Kennedy and Oswald killings. After the assassination, agents that identified his federal by his wife and his plotters by killing began to hound him. They quizzed him about Ruby and Carter when one crew stopped and the other began. According to Kellum, uh, he finally ran when they browbeat him into telling him where he had gone, uh, his wife said. And again, the agents and plotters tracked him down in Tampa where he was working as a used car salesman. They chased him from one lot to another and into his home, and he finally was killed. And he was a big, confident man who didn't shy away from a problem. Over six feet tall, over 200 pounds, a tough customer by all accounts. His wife was absolutely certain he wouldn't have committed suicide because he just wasn't that type of guy. And the way his wife put it was she didn't know who killed him, but he wouldn't have jumped through a window. Now, Kidman was also related to bizarre events in the middle of the night that led to Hank's death. 
This was uh, stated by his brother, Earl. I know my mother said he got a phone call at 4 in the morning the night he died, went out of the house, and the car door was heard to slam. He didn't have a car, and less than 30 minutes later, he was found dead. He said, I know, too, that it's possible somebody picked him up, slid his jugular vein, threw him into the window to make it look like an accident. Then as everyone else who comes in close contact with the case, Earl Killam finally uh, asked the important question, who would have thought of suicide? You don't commit suicide by jumping through a ground floor window. And early that same evening, Officer Reeves answered another call concerning Killam. Reeves was uh, suffering to uh, 316 West Romana Street where he found Killam waiting in front of the house. And there was fear showing in Killam's face, and he claimed he was going to be killed. Well, the basic scenario, at 4.30 in the morning, the victim has a slit jugular vein, carotid artery, and a three-inch gash in his neck. There's a trail of blood leading from the broken window into the department store. The trail is about four feet long, which would mean the victim's body must have struck the window with tremendous force in order to propel the lost blood an additional four feet into the, from the point of impact. And there's a two-foot-high ledge that the victim had to have jumped over in order to get into proper position to go through the window. And yet, when all said and done, he's found 50 feet from the window. So it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure this out. One victim obviously had a lot of help going to that plate glass window at high speed, helping to form most likely of at least one guy on either arm propelling him through the window, probably for the purpose of disguising the matter in which they'd already cut his throat. And he had actually been running from... what he described as federal agents. Now, interestingly enough, there was another death that linked to kill him. William Waters died May 20th, 1967. <laughs> Police said he died of a drug overdose, Demerol. No autopsy performed. Mother said Oswald and Killam came to her home before the assassination and her son tried to talk Oswald and Killam out of being involved. Well, Waters called FBI agents after the assassination. FBI told him he knew too much to keep his mouth shut. And Killam, who has been traced in New Orleans, where D.A. Jim Garrison uh, contended that three men, including Lee Harvey Oswald, planned the Kennedy killing. And Hank Killam was in and out of New Orleans during September, October, November of 63. And his name can be found in the police files there. Well... When you look at the evidentiary conclusions, definitely murder linked to the Kennedy assassination. Um, and of course, there was Gary Underhill, veteran CIA agent. He was killed by a gunshot behind the left ear, which is typical of executions. And yet the official verdict was suicide. Well, I can't kill him. He was clearly running for his life and... Like Killam, his fields are well-founded. He predicted his own murder, and he's murdered shortly after that. Now, he was right-handed to be extremely awkward, not to mention totally pointless for a right-handed person to commit suicide by shooting themselves behind the left ear. As an experienced CIA operative, if he expressed concerns for his life, there were concrete reasons to believe those fears were valid. 
Immediately after the assassination of Kennedy, uh, Underhill put two and two together, and he knew exactly who did it, and he even knew that they knew he knew. Hours after the assassination, he fled Washington in fear of his life. He got to New York, very specific in the reasons and warnings he gave to a close friend. He knew he'd be killed, and he was. And like kill him, Underhill was acutely aware, in fact, certain would actually be the correct word, that people were trying to kill him as a direct result of knowledge he possessed about the Kennedy assassination. Well, for a number of reasons, he believed he was a loose end that needed to be taken care of, and he was. And there's very good reason to believe that Underhill knew exactly what he was talking about. He had a long career as a covert agent with U.S. intelligence, which is uh, very well documented. Some of the official version uh, backers have tried to paint the picture that there's no evidence Underhill was CIA, but experienced researchers and JFK authors thoroughly disproven those attempts. Gary Underhill was indeed a veteran U.S. intelligence agent. Um, Posner, who has uh, been considered a major debunker of a lot of the uh, information about the Kennedy assassination, wrote there was no source for the claim. Underhill was former CIA agent, no cooperation. He was ever said that there was CIA complicity in the assassination. Um... However, Posner done his homework. He had learned there were several sources for Underhill's wartime OSS career and his later CIA consulting status, including Underhill himself. As for his accusations about the CIA and the murder of Kennedy, he related them quite vividly to his friend uh, Charlene Fitzsimmons within 24 hours of the shooting. And she contacted Jim Garrison about the incident in some detail. So the pertinent question would be exactly who exactly was Underhill talking about when he used the word they. I know who they are. They know I know. Well, that's exactly the way Gary Underhill described his problem to his friend after he left Washington in fear of his life. And keep in mind, that was mere hours after the assassination of President Kennedy. He immediately panicked, got into a car, and took off. Um, he, said he knew he had to get out of Washington, drove to the home of a friend, and knew he could trust in Long Island. And he later told her, this country's too dangerous for me. i got to get a, to a, on a boat. Oswald's a patsy. They set him up. It's too much. I should have done something outrageous to kill the president. I've been listening and hearing things. Couldn't believe they got away with it, but they did. They're a bunch of drug runners and gun runners and a real violent group. I know who they are. And they know I know, and that's why I'm here told friends he was running for his life because he knew who conspired against Kennedy, and they know I know. What Underhill was specifically describing was a special group within the CIA that was involved in drugs and gun running in Southeast Asia. And he really did know who they were. He also said the Kennedy murder wasn't as cut and dry as it might appear. According to the friend, Underhill said he knew the people involved, and he fled Washington for his life. He said it's a small clique in the CIA, that's responsible, and they were conducting a lucrative business in the Far East and gun-running and other contraband, manipulating political intrigue to serve their ends. And Kennedy got wind of something going on, and he was going to put a stop to it, and he was killed before he could. Well, Underhill believed 
There was a connection between executive action, Fidel Castro, and the death of Kennedy. Executive action was an assassination program. They tried it in Cuba, and they couldn't get away with it. Right after the Bay of Pigs, but Kennedy wouldn't let them do it. He got wind up, and he's going to, as he said, break the CIA up into a thousand pieces. Well, the executive action, as I said, was a special, highly secret CIA military intelligence unit that was attempting uh, to assassinate uh, Fidel Castro. It suggested Kennedy was actually killed by a turnaround operation of that unit. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll talk more about members of the hit list tomorrow, but until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.